0: I always ask the same question after all the the rest of my questions. Is there something else I should be asking you that I'm not even smart enough to know I should ask? With
1: former UFC middleweight title contender, Mr. Nate The Rock Quarry. Welcome to the Hustle to Greatness podcast. I'm your host, Luke Sisselbath and each week I'll be bringing special guests who will inspire and give us step-by-step action tips on how to hustle our way to greatness. My mission here is to help you to call the shots in your own life and to live your life on your own terms. Follow me on this journey to greatness while picking the minds of these brilliant entrepreneurs. Let's get you from being good to great. Welcome back guys to the Hustle to Greatness uh, podcast. Uh, it's been quite some time and uh, for our first episode back, uh, we have a, a very cool, cool guest and, and as you guys probably already know through the past episodes, I like to get professional athletes turned entrepreneurs on the show. And today I have a MMA fighter, former MMA fighter. Uh, he was on season one of The Ultimate Fighter. I like to call them the, the Tough OG cast. <laughs> and uh, he goes by the name of uh, Nate The Rock Quarry. Uh, welcome to the show, Nate. Pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me here. I appreciate it. Yeah, awesome, man. Like, I've, I've been watching you. Well, I mean, I watched you when it was tough one. And, uh, and I, I've been watching your career ever since. And uh, now I've learned that you've... Uh, You know, you've been coming uh, into entrepreneurship as well. I I love that. I love that type of story where we have uh, professional athletes and, you know, that's all they know. And then, you know, when they they branch out to other things and they use what they've learned in, you know, either fighting or, or being in the Olympics or whatever sports that they've been in. And they've used those soft skills, uh, those mental toughness, and and helped them strive and, and succeed in life and in business. So I really, I really uh, commend you on that. And uh, I, I, I wanted to have you here to to talk about your story. So uh, let's 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 start off first. Let's start from the beginning of uh, how you got into fighting.
0: Well, geez, I I had a very atypical upbringing. I was raised in a cult. I was raised as one of Jehovah's Witnesses. So while all the other kids were out playing football and wrestling and baseball and enjoying their childhood, I was literally going door to door with the Watchtower and Awake magazine trying to convert people to our religion. And it it was just misery. But that's how I was raised. And as you're raised in something like that, then you understand that to be reality. That is truth. This is what you believe. And especially in a cult where they control everything about you, what movies you watch, what books you can read, what friends you have, you're in this bubble because they know as soon as you get out into the world and actually compare what you're being taught with what the rest of the world sees, you're going to leave their religion, their cult, they're going to lose a member, they're going to lose the the income. It's just insanity. So I was raised in this very, very controlling upbringing and was just miserable. And in my early 20s, while I still believed in the religion, I was at a party and this guy comes up to me and he goes, man, there's these two guys beating the hell out of each other in a cage on TV. And I was right at the point where I was getting so disillusioned in the church that I was wanting to leave, but didn't know what to do. And I see so many people that when they're in that type of situation, they're, they're aimless. They don't, they really have no direction whatsoever so they'll get involved in drugs and alcoholism, or just a negative pathway. And I could see that that was kind of in line for me. Although I was always a hard worker. At this time, I think I was the shop foreman at the shop that I ran. I ran a sign shop in Salem, Oregon. I was the head installer for all the signs and led the crews and was the lead builder of the signs as well. We did big gas station signs and stuff. So I, I had. Drive. I just didn't know in what direction to put it in. So I see these two guys in this cage fight, Hoist Gracie and Ken Shamrock, hmm. and I was just blown away. First off, I when somebody told me there's two guys fighting in the cage on TV, my first thought was, who in the hell would do something like that? That is just ridiculous <laughs> in this day and age. Why would you choose to get punched in the face for money? Get get a real job. <laughs> and then I go in and I see Hoist and Ken going at it, and I was just dumbfounded because I related fighting to violence because that's how I was how I was brought up. You do something wrong, the punishment is immediate and swift. Smack to the face, a beating, uh berating, whatever it may be. So I was very much against violence in the whole. And when you're raised in that that type of a household, you either follow that pathway or you go completely the opposite of it. But now I saw that these guys were truly athletes competing against one another, showing their skills. And then, most importantly, at the end of it, they gave each other a big hug. And I just went, God damn, this isn't violence. This is sports. <laughs> this is athleticism. And I, because I had never been allowed to do that in my entire life, I said to myself, for once, I'm going to do what I want to do with my life. And I went into the kitchen and I opened up a phone book and I found a local gym that was teaching this jujitsu and jeet Kune Do and kickboxing. And I said, All right, I'm, I'm going to go down and give it a shot. And my first practice was three hours long. I showed up, I think, on a Monday. Yeah, I showed up, I think, for the Monday night practice. First hour and a half was kickboxing. Second hour and a half was, was, was jujitsu. And I got beat up so badly, choked out so many times that I was sick for three days after that practice. But when I left the gym, as I walked out the door, I just remember thinking to myself, I'm going to keep coming back here until I can kick every single one of your asses. And that's what I did. I was sick for three days. I came back the, the following Thursday was sick for another three days, but I was hooked. I I could now see, and and I had so much rage, so much anger built up inside of me because of this lost childhood, all these hopes and dreams that, that I had thought I had lost. So I channeled that into this fighting career. And at the beginning, it was just going and training. And then they started a competition team. And one of the coaches came to me and said, oh, hey, we're starting this competition team. We're going to be traveling. We're going to be putting on fights. We want you to be on the team. And I just went, wow, that is such an honor. There is no way in hell I'm doing that. (laughs) That is way too scary. I don't know what I'm doing. I get beat up in the gym all the time. This is ridiculous. And my coach looks at me and he goes, no, I think you've got what it takes. You show up, you train hard, you're willing to listen. That's all you need. And I just said, well, you know, if you believe in me, then I guess I should believe in myself. And so after about two years of training... I I contracted to take my first fight. Hopefully, if things are done well, you sign on the contract and there's some period of time between then and the next fight. I fought on around 24 hours notice, but for my first fight, it was about a three-month notice. So for that three months, all I did was eat, sleep, go to work, and train. That was it. I didn't touch a drink of alcohol, nothing. Because I just remember saying to myself, I cannot control my childhood. I can't go back in time and change how I was raised. I can't go back and join the wrestling team. All I can do is dedicate myself 100% to this right now. And if I step into that ring or that cage and he beats my ass, so be it. If he's better than me, there's nothing I can do about that if I put 100% into this. But if he beats me because I'm out of shape, because I get tired, then that's on me. And I wanted to see for the first time in my life... How good I could actually be if I was dedicated and was allowed to do, to follow my dream. And that's what I did. And I beat my opponent in, I think, two and a half minutes, beat him standing up. And then he got a takedown on me and I caught him in a triangle and tapped him out. It was my first real victorious celebration for any athleticism or anything like this. And I remember just running around the ring, just screaming, like after this three months and Randy Couture, but by this time we were training together and I was one of many of his training partners. I was nothing special at the time, but he cornered me for that first fight and I ran up to him and I went, so this is what it feels like to win, win the belt in the UFC. (laughs) And he kind of laughed at me, but in my mind, and it was a joke, but at the same thing, it, it, it meant the exact same thing to me. Right. Because where he came from, wrestling as a kid, he he never really had a job. He wrestled in school. When he joined the Army, he wrestled uh, wrestled at college. And then he joined the UFC. Whereas with me, I was 12 years old. I was working in the fields for money. I'm picking strawberries. And if I was making 20 bucks a day, man, I was doing good. And half of that money went to my family, went for clothes and stuff like that. And I got to keep the other 10. And then I went into the fast food, flipping burgers, Uh, then I did janitorial, my, geez, my junior, senior year of high school, I did janitorial work. Uh, I insulated under floors. So I was doing grown men's jobs from the age 14, 15 on working with, with grown men in construction, framed houses out of high school, uh, and then got a job with the sign shop at, I think I was 20 years old. And then was, was running the cruise and the shop foreman there at 23 or so. So it was just a, I don't want to say it's much of a crazy journey. It's just kind of odd looking back at it. And somebody once told me, they're like, man, I really hope you're writing all this stuff down. Everything that you've done and gone through. Because it's just, it's just crazy. And I looked at him and I was like, well, what do you mean? Isn't this just how everybody's life is? And he was like, no. Are you <laughs> kidding me? No, man. No one's had a life like yours. And I was like, oh, I, I guess I never really thought about it like that. But yeah, that's that's how it was. Yeah, not a lot of people start their first sport uh being a combat sport. And and my first workout at twenty four. Yeah, exactly. Eleven years later, I was fighting for the world title for the UFC. Getting knocked out for the world title for the UFC. Mm-hmm. But I made it there. Right. I went from the, the strawberry fields making 12 cents a pound, I think it was, to fighting for the world title pay-per-view main event at the MGM Grand. Yeah, that's that's crazy. That's crazy how,
1: uh, you know, the determination that you had there. And, and uh, I know I, after you, you mentioning it, I wanted to ask you, you know, what what really drove you? Uh, but it, it's something that you've, you know, never dedicated yourself to one thing before. But was there something else besides that rage, whatever, that, that kept you going? Because, I mean, a lot of people out there and i i myself at one point in my life is you know i d- i didn't know what i wanted to do and how did you know that this was something that you
0: wanted to do it was just such a great channel and and i keep going back to that rage that i had because that that was the household that i was raised in uh, you never knew if you if we'd come home and the house would be destroyed cuz my my father was angry and my dad would reach for the remote for the tv and we would all duck and cover and then he'd get mad at us and tell us, I don't hit you that much. I don't know what you're so, so worried about. So I was raised in this household. My dad would get so angry, his ears would turn purple, literally, as he was yelling at us. So I had this, this overwhelming fear in my childhood and this rage that was building up inside of me because this is what I knew. This is what I saw on a daily basis was this anger and this rage. But if I, I had no outlet for it. If I got in a fight at school, the beating I took at home would be 10 times worse. And not just because it's it's a stupid kid doing stupid things. No, being raised in a cult as a Jehovah's Witness, then I was an embarrassment to God as well. So I had to keep that in mind. So I had all of this anger and rage just bottled up inside of me. It's still something, isn't it? It in it's it its kind of my Achilles heel to this day. I have to always remind myself, dude, you've got so much to be thankful for. You don't have to be angry about stuff, but at the same time, again, going back to how I was raised and what I saw and being picked on, I get so angry when I see injustice, when I see somebody getting picked on, when I see somebody that's just morally wrong. It just, again, it just makes me so angry to see these things, to see the way that the world is progressing in so many ways, and I know that today is is really the best period to have ever lived. Every single year, the crime goes down. We defeat more diseases, all these things. But people want to live in this fear. They want to, they, we have the Republican Party right now getting up there screaming about murder and crime and violence. And then a reporter asked Newt Gingrich, I said, flat out, the crime rate's going down. It's never been safer to be a police officer. It was much more violent for police in the 1970s when Prohibition in the 1920s, that 13-year span, that was a much worse time to be a police officer. And Newt Gingrich just smiled and said, it doesn't matter what the numbers say. What matters is how the people feel. They're just trying to whip people into a frenzy. Mm -hmm. So they're terrified going through their entire day. And I just don't understand it. Why do you want to go through your life like that? When the, the, the things that are actually dangerous out there are what? overeating. That's our number one killer. (laughs) That is true. It blows me away when people talk about the legalization of marijuana Uh, and how people have to to pretend that all it is is medical benefits. No, 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 no. I only partake of of marijuana because of glaucoma, uh, because of these medical benefits. It's like, why do we have to pretend that that's why somebody wants to get high? Mm Mm-hmm. Why can't you just say, I want to relax at the end of the day and smoke a bowl and just chill. My responsibilities are done. It helps me sleep. It helps me relax. Why do you have to pretend that there's this medical need for it? Whereas if it was alcohol, what do you say? Boy, I'm taking this shot of whiskey because it really helps my yep. liver, my glaucoma. <laughs> I, or, no, why don't we just start banning everything that doesn't have a medical benefit? Let's get sugar out of there. Why, why do we have... Coca-Cola, 7-Up, why are these things available? What about the diabetes that these things are causing? What about nicotine? Mm Mm-hmm. When I, I see these things and I, I realize that I have a tendency to ramble about these things that I'm passionate
1: about. No, that's cool, man. That's cool. Uh, and and I, I'm kind of seeing like, uh, I know, correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, you, you know, being uh, growing up in that in that type of environment and being bottled up and having to think a certain way, uh, being told to think a certain way. And after getting into MMA, this all just unleashed and you became
0: yourself. I, it really did. I And it's funny because I was always the same guy. It was just so bottled up. Mm-hmm. If you took me today at 44 and you took me at 12 or 13, we're pretty much the exact same dude. I love comic books. I love martial arts. I just bought a whole bunch of Lego sets from uh, Boot Lake. <laughs> nice. Lego in China that I ordered. I'm just, I'm a big kid who loves to have fun and, and not take, I don't take stupid things too seriously. And, but when I, I see injustice and when I see things that, that shouldn't be done that way. That's when I start getting upset. So yeah, I I get very passionate about that. And actually being able to find myself and find that outlet through MMA, that's what really gave me a direction for my life. And it's funny because people think of fighting as violence as I did. Whereas instead, no, it gave me this direction. It gave me an outlet for this rage. And I've met so many incredible, just amazing people throughout this. People that I've been able to turn to and I've been able to learn from, as well as as I never even knew anybody that graduated from college. I had no clue. And then when I started fighting, I met some wrestlers who graduated from college. But now I know CEOs of huge corporations and and all these things. And I look at them and I'm like, "Damn, you're not smarter than I am." Uh huh. Yes. You just you just had a different pathway. And it's funny. I was I had a Nick and Nate Diaz on my on my show, MMA Uncensored, back in 2012. So afterwards, we go out, and we're we're sitting at a bar having a drink. And it's funny because people look at me now, and I'm the white guy with the fairly high and tight haircut, uh, wearing jeans. I look like your average white guy in a lot of ways. (laughs) And so I'm talking with with Nick, and he, he looks at me and he goes, So what? You played football growing up, huh? And I started laughing and I was like, man, you got no idea. You have no idea how much alike we are in so many different ways. You're judging me on how I look and how I come off. I speak clearly because that's how I was raised. I swear in my personal life, a ridiculous amount I just clean it up while I'm doing interviews and things like that. But the, the only real skills that I, I learned growing up was hard work and how to speak because going door to door. And then I was giving public talks at church from the time I was seven years old. So I had to learn how to carry myself in that way. But after, after Nick kind of realized that, no, man, <laughs> back in high school, you probably would have been picking on me. It wouldn't have been the other way around. But we were talking and I said, I said Nick, you know what's really interesting to me, man? That you chose fighting as a career, which is such a difficult sport, and you're so good at it, when you could have gone to college and gotten some crazy education, become a CEO of some multi-million dollar, if not billionaire company, and run your life out that way. And he looks at me like I'm speaking some crazy Martian language, and he's like, what? No, man, no, I can't do that shit. No, that's not for me. (laughs) And I look at him, I go, oh, oh, I understand, I get it. You're just not smart enough to do that. It's cool. Uh, I get it. You're just not. It's just not for everybody. You're not smart enough to sit down. You can't understand a book and shit like that. He goes, what'd you say to me? And I go, no, man. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to insult you. It's not that you're not smart enough. It's that you're too lazy. You just don't have a work ethic to do something like that. He's like, what the fuck did you just tell me? And I look at him with a big smile and I go, man, you could have done anything with your life. You've shown that through your fighting career. It's just interesting to me that you chose this as your pathway, that this is what called to you. This is what gave you the self-esteem, the drive, the good feeling about yourself. And this is what comes more naturally to you. And it's the same thing with me. If you would have come to me 15 years ago or even 20 years ago and said, hey, You got two pathways. You can embark on this crazy fighting career where you never know what's going to happen, where your next meal is coming from. You're going to get knocked out in front of millions of people. It's going to be such a dramatic knockout. They're going to show it for years at the start of every UFC pay-per-view. Or you can go to college, get a degree, start this business, and be a millionaire and still be able to walk at 35 without a lot of pain. I'd be like, College? That doesn't really make any sense to me. I hated school. I don't I don't really know about that. But fighting, yeah, I could get my anger out that way. It's just it's it's the reality that we present ourselves with. Mm-hmm. And it's a matter of expanding that horizon. I took a, a drive through Camden, New Jersey, seven or eight years ago. I was out there uh, visiting some friends, and a guy was going to take me to the airport. And he's a cop there, and he was in his his own personal vehicle. And he's like, hey, man, I'm going to drive you through Camden, New Jersey. This is the the Beats that I patrol. And he's a darker-skinned guy, and I'm obviously a white guy. And he says, don't be surprised. I'm going to lock the doors. I'm going to set my gun up here on the next to the windshield so everybody can see it. But every time we come to a stop sign, expect them to kind of rush the car because you being white, they're going to assume you're here to, to score. And so we're driving through Camden, New Jersey, and I'd never seen nothing like this. Burned out buildings, one right next to the other, people hanging on the corner, slinging rock and pimping and shit. And I, I'm looking at this and it really kind of opened my eyes because I come from more of the you know the, the white trash background. You know, My mother lives in a trailer. My brother lives in a homeless shelter right now. So that's kind of the background that I'm used to. So I've never seen kind of inner city slums. But seeing all this, and I asked the guy who was driving me around, I said, hey, man, why don't these guys go out and get jobs? I know they, they got to have some work around someplace in construction or fast food or something. Why don't they try to change their lives, turn something around? And he looks at me and he goes, what did your father do for work? I said, oh, he was a carpenter. I was Okay. So he went to work you know, 40 hours a week. He brought home a paycheck. He bought food for your family. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's what went down. He goes, so your father taught you a work ethic. This guy's dad was shot right in front of him when he was five. This guy never knew his dad. This guy's mom's strung out on crack. This guy's mom's a, a, a hooker. This guy, he was breaking it down to me that these people here that I was seeing, this was their reality. They didn't know anything other than that. And it takes a very strong mind to, on your own, escape that reality and try and find something new. And I was in a documentary, uh, The Truth Be Told, by Gregorio Smith, who was raised a Jehovah's Witness, just like I was. And whereas I found fighting as my outlet, he wanted to tell the story in a movie. So he interviews me for this movie. Great documentary. Google it, The Truth Be Told, Gregorio Smith. You can find it online. And he comes out to Portland, stays at my house, and we did some screenings here in the Portland area in Seattle. So I go with him. We watch the movie with the crowd, and then we speak at the end of it. And I stood up there and I said, I want every one of you here to know how strong you are. Because when you leave Jehovah's Witnesses, you're leaving all the friends you've ever known. You're leaving your family. Your family is no longer going to acknowledge you even exist. And you're losing all of these friends that you grew up with because they ostracized you. They excommunicate you. So I stood up there and I said, I want every single one of you to realize the strength that you have. Because I've seen so many people, they won't even leave a job that they hate because they're afraid. Or they'll stay in a marriage that they hate their wife or she hates her husband, and they're just they're they're comfortably miserable and they're so afraid to take a chance on something else because we're so we're taught from the very beginning that if we make a mistake, well, we get a red mark there. If you make a mistake, that's bad, you can't make a mistake. you have to be right. you have to get hundred percent all the time. you have to get straight A's, whatever you do, don't fail. And I stood up there and I said, every single one of you. You took a chance on starting this life newly. You took a chance on finding yourself and your passion, knowing from the get-go how much you were going to lose. Because when I left the Jehovah's Witnesses, I lost my family, all the friends I'd ever known. I was even fired from my job. And as I stood there out in front of the crowd, I said, I want all of you to understand that you are worthy of unconditional love because you have never been shown that your entire life. Your whole life, this this blanket of love could be pulled out from you at any time because what you smoked a cigarette or you got cussing at school or you got a hand job from your, your girlfriend. These are things that God is going to want to kill you at Armageddon and they kick you out of out of the church, that you chose to leave that organization and start your life completely new. Every one of you here is deserving of unconditional love, and I want you to celebrate the strength that you have. And I looked out into the crowd, and there was a woman sitting there crying and shaking her head no, while her significant other was holding her saying, do you see? Do you see how much I love you and you deserve this love? But she just couldn't understand it because she'd never been shown that it's it's just such an incredible life that we all have and that's so why I, I really try to understand where people come from and and get them to understand too they can only understand what they've seen through their own two eyes and until you really try to open this up i I try to disprove the things that I believe I don't want to argue in an echo chamber I don't sit there with somebody who's who's a pothead and go hey, you think weed should be legalized? Well, of course it's going to say yes. I'm going to sit down with a police officer and have that discussion or whatever it may be. I I love to have religious conversations, talk these things out. I sat down with a, a, a Muslim woman and asked her, why do you believe this? Why do you believe this is the truth? And I feel all too often people are just so set in their reality, their world. They're never willing to even question because as soon as you question, well, then you might be wrong, and you might have to find another path. When Bill Nye, the science guy, debated Ken Ham, the curator of the Creation Museum in Texas, which is an incredible, it's on YouTube, Google that. It it gets kind of painful listening to Ken Ham. If you have to fast forward through it, I understand. (laughs) But it's really incredible. This is a guy who believes that dinosaurs walked with human beings and dinosaurs were on the ark. So that kind of sets you the premise for what he believes. But at the end of the talk, the, the, the person leading the questions asked them both, what would it take for you to abandon your beliefs and believe what the other person believes? Bill Nye, what would it take for you to believe in God and creation? Ken Ham, what would it take for you to believe in atheism and evolution? And Bill Nye said just so simply, evidence, all you need to do is prove it to me. I don't take things on faith. Faith is believing in something with no evidence. That's the literal definition of it. I believe in something with zero proof behind it. And that's fine. People can have that. That's cool. But if you're a scientist, you need to believe in things presented to you by evidence. That's it. And then the moderator asked Ken Ham, what will it take for you to believe in evolution? And Ken Ham looked at him and said, nothing. Nothing will change my mind. It doesn't matter how much evidence is thrown his way. His mind is made up. And as long as we see it, as long as we have people saying, well, I can breathe because I do what the cops say. Okay, well, how many times have you sat down with black people from inner city communities and asked them, how many times have you been arrested? How many times have you been ticketed? How many times have you been stopped by the police for no reason? Until you start asking these questions, you're never going to understand that frustration. hmm there's so many, so many different realities out there. So many different points of view. That until we start honestly asking those questions and wanting to learn, nothing is going to change. I, I know you, you know you you have a lot of uh, self awareness,
1: and I know you got this from fighting. But uh, you know at such a at such a young age, you're in your early twenties. You figured out, look, this is something that I could I could really lose on. But I'm just going to go ahead and 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 take the bull by the horns and and go for it. Now, there's a lot of people out there that that. Myself at one point, and sometimes, you know, we we, we doubt ourselves, right? We're going through the grind, and, you know, we're we're going through, we're getting knocked down, uh, not physically, but, you know, through our ventures and and things like that. And you as being a fighter going to the extreme, actually, you know, getting knocked down, getting back up, knocking them out uh, physically, uh, you obviously learn a, a great deal about yourself. So for people that, you know, that don't know, you know, that are kind of, uh, i like, I don't want to say oblivious, but I'll say oblivious uh, to, you know, things that they should do, the potential that they should have, uh, that they do have. Like, how well, can you give me some advice on what you've learned through fighting and how you discovered that, so somebody else can can relate to
0: that as well? That's listening to the show. I think one of the one of the keys as you're getting older, and I wish I, I thought about this when I was younger, is having no regrets. And people have asked me in the past, well, what are your regrets? What regrets do you have? And as I think about it, I've definitely made some mistakes that I wish I could change. But the regrets that I have more than anything, and I think this probably will go through with everybody on their deathbed when they look back at their life, their biggest regret will be opportunities not pursued, chances mm. never taken. Because there's so many things out there, so many things that we can accomplish. And if you fail, you are no worse off than you are right now. I I, I have dealt with my fair share of haters on the internet, on Twitter, on Facebook, MySpace, all that stuff. These are all losers. <laughs> These are people that I don't care what they say. They're not friends of mine. I don't ask them for advice. I go to successful people for advice. And that's one of my my favorite quotes that I told somebody one time who was ripping on me. It's like, I don't I don't take advice from losers. If you're so scared of failing, you're never going to accomplish anything. You need to prove it to yourself because you're the one at the end of the day. You're the one that's going to be with yourself that it's your life. If you sit back and you worry so much about disappointing people you've never even met or being made fun of on the internet or things like that. It's just such a wasted life. And when you finally grasp that feeling that this is my life, I'm going to live it how I want to. It is such a freeing feeling, no matter what that is. And it just takes effort. Get out there. Whatever you enjoy doing, somebody makes a shitload of money doing it. Why not you? Most definitely. And I always ask myself, whenever I see a new undertaking that I want to pursue, I ask myself three questions. Am I smart enough to do this? Well, huh. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm not. If I'm not, I can learn. So, yeah, I guess I am smart enough. Or I will be smart enough. Am I willing to work hard enough? And Am I a hard enough worker to accomplish this? There's never been anything that I've wanted that... it. I wasn't willing to work myself to death. In fact, in certain projects, when I'm, I'm remodeling a house or something, part of my worker's job is to keep me fed because I forget to eat. I'm so passionate about what I'm doing, I just want to get done and I want to get through this. And then third, am I willing to make the sacrifice necessary to make this happen? And if the answer is yes to that, then the sky's really the limit. And I tell my daughter, I have worked so hard to give her the opportunities that she has. She has the childhood I never had. And all she really has to do is go to school and get good grades and build for her future. Because I tell her, knowledge is the key to everything. When you have that knowledge, you are boundless. You can accomplish anything. And the knowledge is everywhere. Anyone in America... Can learn a foreign language on their iPhone, on their cell phone. Yeah, And as soon as you do, you just opened yourself up to a whole nother career opportunity. There's so many things that we can do, but it comes down to, are you willing to put in the time? Are you smart enough? Are you willing to become smart enough? It's really a matter of getting in there and just doing it. Find what you're passionate about. Find what you love. And <laughs> don't be afraid to look stupid. Mm -hmm. When I started training, man, I was the worst. I was so bad, getting choked out over and over again. I trained with Dan Henderson, two-time Greco-Roman Olympian, uh, two-time heavyweight pride champion. He held, I think, both belts, middleweight and heavyweight belt at the same time. Yeah. I'm training with this guy, and I'm a scrub off the street. He is suplexing me over and over and over again in a single round. In between rounds, and I'm Danny's Dan Henderson's main training partner for this fight. Randy Couture is there cornering, giving us advice in between the rounds. Bell goes off. Randy looks at me. I can't stand up. I'm so beaten down. I can't even lift my head to look at Randy because my head's been so worked. And Randy's saying, you're giving up the underhook. He's arm dragging you. He's taking your back and suplexing you. You got to fight the underhook. And I push my head up so I can look at Randy and I go, I don't understand anything that you're telling me. <laughs> I don't know what any of those words mean. I don't know what an underhook is, a suplex. I don't know what any of this is. And, di- and Randy looks at me and goes, time, we'll figure it out. Back on your feet. Let's go. And I showed up the next day because I was not afraid to look stupid. Yeah. Because when you're afraid to look stupid, you never learn. And when I'm dealing with new situations, new opportunities, whatever, I always ask the same question after all the the rest of my questions. Is there something else I should be asking you that I'm not even smart enough to know I should ask? And that will open up this door where somebody will say, huh, boy, yeah, what else should you know about this project? I, I understand real estate. And more than that, I understand everybody, I think, can understand real estate. If you make the slightest effort, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. They had a a book that's out of print now. I think it was a Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Real Estate Guide, something like that. Just a brilliant understanding. And and especially Rich Dad, Poor Dad made me understand money. Money can work for you. You don't have to work for money. You want to get this money so it can work for you. And as I was fighting, I was always thinking, this career is going to end. How do I want the rest of my life to go? Do I, all I know is construction. Do I want to be back swinging a hammer? Do I want to be welding signs together? I got to think things through. Okay, I understand real estate. Well, geez, if I buy a house and I live there for two years, if I buy a really shitty house in a decent neighborhood, I live there for two years, then I resell it. All the money that I make off reselling it is tax-free up to $250,000. That's a pretty damn good income. Mm-hmm. Well, geez, well, now what if I buy this house because I've, I've paid all my bills? I've got a good credit rating. I buy that, then I rent it out and I move on to my next house, and that's my primary residence. And then I, if I can pay that one off and just keep building these things, looking for these opportunities. For me, it's real estate because I understand construction. I can fix up a house, I, I understand neighborhoods. It's finding what you're passionate about, learning about it, and looking for these opportunities. I was listening to a podcast the other day and it was a woman talking about her success and how she has this great business that she runs and she's very successful now and, and very wealthy. And she said, you know what my key to success has been? And, and everybody there sitting back is going, obviously it's hard work. And she goes, I bet you're thinking it's hard work. And yeah, you're, you're partially right, but it's also luck. I have been very lucky. And that's something that a lot of successful people just don't want to admit, how lucky we have all been. I have been so lucky over and over and over again because, geez, when I started training, it just so happened that Randy Couture, I think five-time UFC champion, lived a mile from the gym that I started training at. So crazy, yeah. But what wasn't lucky was that I showed up and trained with him. What wasn't lucky was that I went up to him and said, Randy, I'm going to fly down to see your rematch against Pedro Hizo, If I can be of any help, let me know. And he said, well, geez, I need a corner, man. You've been a consistent training partner. How'd you like to corner me? I'll pay for your flight in your hotel room. you damn right. How lucky was that, that I got to meet Randy Couture? And then on top of that, that luck met my preparation. I did my part. I looked for the opportunity. That's the luck. And then being ready for it, that's where my work came in to make it happen. One of the hardest lessons that we have to learn, and I wish everybody listening to this would take this away, nobody is going to care about your money as much as you are. Mm-hmm. And I had a guy who claimed to be my best friend come to me with this great deal. And it's, it's you know, just loan him 50 grand. Two weeks later, not only am I going to get my 50 grand back, I'm going to get 10% back in this business. Really? Okay, well, here's 50 grand. Make that happen. Two weeks later, oh shit, that deal didn't work out. We rolled it into another business, but now we're going to get this money back. And then it goes years without this money. Well, I've been able to work it where I am getting paid back. But it's one of those opportunities. I I invested in a bunch of real estate in Buffalo, New York. Because I looked at that and I said, my God, you can buy a house out there for $10,000 and rent it out for 500 bucks a month you are set. This is in, two, in two years, you have the house paid off and you can go on to the other one. Well, I don't live in Buffalo, New York. I can't drive to Buffalo, New York. So now I have to pay someone else to manage the property, to fix the toilet. And it has been the biggest financial mistake I've ever made in my life. I've lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in Buffalo, New York, because I thought that, well, this property manager is going to be honorable just like me. Well this repairman's going to be honorable just like me. Well no, that's not the case. So now if I can't drive to a property, I don't buy it. If I can't look the the contractor in the eye and shake his hand and control the funds and see the job, then it's not a deal worth doing. It's been a, it's been a tough lesson to learn, but at the same time, I look at that and and they always say that one of the keys to successful people is when we fail, we get back up. And that's really the key. If you came to me 15 years ago, or you told me now, hey, here's the thing. Uh, I'll give you back all the money that you lost in Buffalo, but you'll never have the balls to really get involved in something like that in the first place. Or you can lose all that money and be the man you are today, I'd say, well, geez, I'd rather lose that money and be the type of man that's willing to take that chance in the first place, learn my lesson and use those lessons and move forward to bigger and better things. Because that's really the key. If you're afraid to lose, you're never gonna play. You wanna get in there, be as educated as you possibly can. Remember, and oh, this was a hilarious one. So I wrote wrote the screenplay for Zombie Cage Fighter. Zombie Cage Fighter is my biographical horror story. Go to zombiecagefighter.com. You can get a free PDF of the first comic book. I have awesome t shirts there as well. You can get hard copies of the comic book. That's my little plug. Oh, it's cool. my life story, what I've gone through, seen, and done as a fighter and as a single father plus zombies. So I finished this screenplay. I have an, a Hollywood offer on the table two weeks after it's done. Guy rolls up this contract and says, I want to make your movie. This is gonna be incredible. This is just gonna be an amazing story. So I take the contract back and I read it and I give it to my high-priced Hollywood lawyer, which was kind of a waste because I could read the contract myself, but she gave me some priceless advice. So the deal was two and a half percent of the net profits and ten dollars to hold the hold the screenplay for two years. Anybody that knows anything about Hollywood movies, there is no net profit. They work the books to where there's never a profit on the books. I know the writer of uh, the Johnny Cash movie, which cost, I think, $40, 40 million to make, and it grossed $150 million. He was supposed to get, I think, 12.5% of the net profits. He never got a dime mm. because they roll it into something else. Yeah. So it always shows a loss. So I'm looking at this contract and'm I'm, and I'm livid talking to my lawyer I'm so pissed off. how dare he offer me this? this is an insult this is ridiculous and my lawyer starts laughing and she just she gives me this priceless advice advice I'd wish I'd gotten 30 years ago. she says, "You just don't get it, man. their job is to make money. your job is to not be stupid <laughs> And I was like, "God, that is the most simple, basic advice that makes so much sense. If I looked at every single deal with that same outset, mm-hmm. okay, i'm going to go into this building with this this guy, well, he wants to make as much money as possible, so I've got to make sure I'm not stupid and give away all my money. So how do I work that out what do i Who do I need to talk to? How do I need to educate myself?" If I would have said that to myself over and over again through every business, my life would be very different right now. But it's a very, it's, it's such a brilliant lesson to be learned. And it, it may sound jaded, but that's just the way of the world. Because as we look out there, the, the owners of Walmart with the four siblings are worth $144 billion and their workers are on welfare. Yeah. And they still don't have enough money. They're profiting billions of dollars every single year, and it just adds zeros to their bank account. For them, it will never be enough. So you're not going to convince people like that to raise up people, to give them a living wage so their workers are appreciative and sing their praises. They don't care. They don't know the workers. Your job is to not be stupid. Your job is to get an education. Your job is to make your opportunities to provide yourself a better life because no one else is going to give that to you. The opportunities that I have now, the real estate ventures I'm in right now, and I'm building a few things here in the Portland area, have come because I've been a hard worker. And I've been loyal and honest and trustworthy so that investors have come to me and said, oh, so you're the guy that we want to do business with because you are going to be straight up with us and you are going to take care of our money so we don't have to worry about it. Those opportunities are out there, but you have to be lucky enough to find them, by which I mean you have to work your ass off to make those opportunities happen. I agree. Wow. That's, that's great.
1: A lot of great, uh,
0: life and business lessons
1: here today. Thanks a lot, Nate, uh, for, for coming on the show. A pleasure. If you, yeah, if you could go over, uh, sorry, zombiefighter.com is where people can zombie cage fighter. Sorry, zombie dot com. My apologies. Uh, dot com is where they can get the a free
0: download of, uh, the PDF of the, the first edition. Is, is that what you said? Uh huh. Yep. Yep. And I'm working on the six issue miniseries right now and the story is coming along great. Actually, uh, My good friend Randy Bowen, who is the number one superhero sculptor in the world, just finished a zombie cage fighter statue. Like If you go into any comic book store, you'll see the Spider-Man, Incredible Hulk. Well, now I have a zombie cage fighter statue that I'll have available here pretty soon. It's going to be a pretty limited edition because those things are as expensive as hell to make, but it's going to be cool. Nice. So I've got that going on as well, as as well as working on the miniseries. And then I still work with the company... Uh, Nuvasive, N-U-V-A-S-I-V-E. I am their spokesman for back surgery because I had a spinal fusion back surgery about 11 years ago. I had just fought for the world title, got brutally knocked out, but three months later, I couldn't pick up my five-year-old little girl. So I, I, I just got lucky that I found a surgeon that knew this new technology, this new technique that gave me my life back. And I was back fighting live on Spike TV in front of millions of people. and. I went back to the company and I said, geez, there's, there's this huge disconnect between what people think is possible with back surgery and what really is possible. And so I work with them as a part of their, their better, it's called thebetterwayback.org. And I'm not a salesman. I don't get a commission if somebody gets back surgery. I don't even encourage someone to get back surgery. All I do is encourage them to educate themselves. And I help them find the surgeons that have these new technologies that can give them their life back. And my back is wrecked. I've had two fusions now because I've got degenerative disc disease. I'm going to have another one coming up probably in the next few months. But I've got great surgeons around me, great technology. It's still scary. And I need someone to talk to. And that's what The Better Way Back provides. Is we have uh, patient ambassadors that have gone through this that you can talk to and you can ask ask your questions. What the recovery is like, what the pain was like, those types of things. Because back surgery is terrifying. And all you ever hear about is these horror stories. Well, I'm here to tell you, you can have a a back surgery and you can get your life back like I did, hopefully. So thebetterwayback.org is where you can go and just kind of educate yourself about the back surgery technologies that are are available if you are suffering from leg and back pain. Cool.
1: All right. Well, uh, again, thanks a lot uh, for coming on the show, Nate. Uh, Guys, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, Nate. Very, very wise man. I mean, uh, I, I didn't even think the conversations will get will get that deep, but it got really, really deep, <laughs> man. You're a deep dude, uh, which is awesome. You know, talked about business, life, uh, some very simple business lessons, which we should all uh, take note. And uh, again, man, I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Alright guys, that is the first episode back from a long hiatus and we had uh, Date The Rock Quarry, you know, spit some gems you know, just uh, chopped it up with us and had a great time learned a lot from him and you know, he, he gets, you get a lot of insight from people that uh, were combat athletes, right? Because they need to be very self-aware of themselves and they learn a lot from themselves and they tweak as they go and um, you know, and, and it was a, gr- a lot of great insight as to how they think uh, at such a high level and what they do on a regular basis to keep them at that high level. Um, so I appreciate Nate for coming on the show and you know giving us giving us some insight on his thought process and you know uh, other stuff as well uh, also I wanted to give a shout out to my little three-year-old nephew Ethan and he's the one that you hear in the intro saying episode 25 that's thats my boy right there my little homie and he's only three years old he but he was he was begging me to come on he's like he saw me doing some recordings and he said, I want to do that uncle boom uncle boom that's what he calls me uncle boom and i was like hey you know what let's put him on the intro for the first episode back so that's him a little star a uh, little star in the making uh mr ethan i gonna see his last name mr ethan you know who you are so good i'm giving him a shout out to, to him and his parents for letting me have him on the episode so uh, on another note, uh, I want to let you guys know i got some big things coming. Uh, it's going to be uh, a lot of new things Uh The podcast is still going to be going on. Uh, However, it's going to be under uh, a name, a a, a hub called Fuel Your Hustle. So stay tuned. Keep going to hustletalk.com for the updates. Everything's uh, still in the design phase of things. You know, a lot of content's created, but we just wanted to make everything right, everything visually appealing and easy to navigate for you guys. So you can get everything uh, from Fuel Your Hustle. And we're gonna go with the theme. Same thing as hustle to greatness. However, you know, we're gonna focus a lot more on hustling smart rather than hustling hustling hard, right? Uh, you know, you, when you can. The reason behind this is, you know, I I've went through that phase where I was hustling, 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 but I, all I was doing was hustling, and it was affecting my health. Now. When I was, uh, I stumbled upon uh, a few resources on hustling smarter, and it really stuck out to me that you know you need to leverage your time and hustle smart and focus on the right things at the right time in order to reap uh, the higher benefit higher high rewards and uh, that's what we're gonna go with with uh, with that philosophy and that theme you know so that you can have uh, a, you can learn a lot more from what I went through and from what some of my guests have gone through and uh, you know put that into your arsenal and have you a plan to hustle smarter and not harder. Leverage your time so that you can live the life that you choose, the life that you design, and you don't have to be. Unless unless you love hustling and you want to have more time to hustle, then it's going to help you do that that stuff as well. But if you you know you're looking to work get get a get a life balance and, and reap huge rewards, huge returns, you know, come to our site. We're going to show you how to do it. Feel Your Hustle, it's going to be its own domain as well, but uh, in the meantime, keep going to hustletalk.com for more updates. So until next time, guys, keep hustling.